wonderful Sabbath day thus far. And uh, this is going to be quite an interesting, I'm not sure if study would be the right word for it, but I do think that um, it will hopefully be enlightening. Uh, we're talking about digital technology uh, within the context of evangelism. And there's quite a few things that I'd like to share um, just in terms of the, the approach that we're going to be using. Um, but before we do that, I'd like us just to bow our heads, close our eyes for a little prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you can be with us uh, on this day. We thank you for all the lessons that we've learned thus far. Lord, we also like to contemplate on this Easter weekend, um, time to spend with our families, time to consider your death and resurrection. And we pray that uh, you may open our hearts and minds to your Holy Spirit's pleading with our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I'd like to start um, like any religious um, kind of exploration of a topic with a bit of a biblical, a biblical basis, but we're going to spend most of the time actually looking at um, more historical examples. And the idea behind this, if you get nothing else, is to say that having an aversion for um, technology is in some senses unchristian. And I know that we tend to have this kind of reticence towards actually engaging with uh, technology because we might be suspicious of who created it, when they created it, why they created it. But I want to go through the history of, let's say, the, the how, how technology has proliferated within the Judeo-Christian context, as well as within history from Christians. Um, and so I kind of want to go back to a cheesy example that we all use, um, Genesis chapter 3. And I'll start with verse 7 and then move to verse 21. Now, it reads, in the English Standard Version, it reads, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So this is what many consider to be the first example of technology, at least and as far as the Bible is concerned, uh, you have the problem of sin. They realize that they're naked. And so they develop a solution to a problem. And that fundamentally is the definition of technology. I know that these days we tend to think of technology or tech as being something digital or something automated or machinery. But really technology is applying a solution to a problem. And when you think of it that way, any solution you make which can fundamentally reduce human effort or which can which can bring about a solution to a problem can be thought of as technology and that's important because you begin to realize that an aversion to digital technology also kind of has a certain underpinning philosophy of having an aversion to technology and what I do want to show within the context of this presentation is that had our forebears 
had our pioneers had the same aversion that some of us do have today, we wouldn't be where we are. Um, and so when we move to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21, um, it reads from the English Standard Version again, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now one can imagine that at this point in time had they looked at what they had been wearing for some time, right? These fig leaf aprons. And here comes God with a new garment made of new type of material, which he kind of brought out of nowhere. And the way some of us react now would be akin to Adam and Eve saying, yeah, no, I'm okay with these leaves. Leave, no, I mean, on top of that, I mean, he had to kill an animal for him to get these skins. Hashtag veganism. Like, why would you do that? That's animal cruelty. And we'd have all these kind of arguments against why God shouldn't have brought them something new. And yet we realize that the reason for the animal skins is because an animal had to die, which was forecasting when Christ would die because of sin. And so you realize that by rejecting that technology, technically they're rejecting the gospel itself. And so you've got to be careful when you do reject technology or when you do reject a new solution just because it's new. You've actually got to consider why the solution is coming into play, what is the problem that it's trying to solve, and if the solution addresses an issue that the previous technology might even be creating, then you've got to give up what you currently have for that which is new. So I want to show an example of a, a, a technology that was created in the Bible, how it was used, how it was misused, what are some of the, what are some of the, let's say, um, consequences of it being used. And it's a very touchy subject, but, and I'm not gonna spend too much time on it, but I do want to illustrate a point. From there, we're going to go into history. And specifically because I'm Seventh-day Adventist, um, and this is a Seventh-day Adventist platform, we're going to look at some of our Seventh-day Adventist pioneers, but we're also gonna have a, have a look at some other Christian um, pioneers that embrace technology and use technology in order to further the gospel. We're then gonna round it off with an example of how the kind of wholesale adoption of technology might be dangerous. So I'm not necessarily saying that we shouldn't, um, that, that we should always take on technology, but we, we shouldn't be hesitant to take on. Um, so let's begin. I want to go to Exodus and chapter 31. But before that, I just want to comment on Exodus chapter 25. This is um, just something that I, I wanted us to comment on. So in, in Exodus chapter 25, it gives us an idea of how the Ark of the Covenant was constructed. And then I'll, I'll, so basically how it was constructed um, is that you have the Ark. Within it, you have a few items. It's been closed by the mercy seat. And then it's 
it, it's got these golden rings on the side, right, on each corner. And how they would transport it is to slide poles in through those hoops. And then someone would go on that side and then this side, on that side and on this side. And they'd pick up the pole and put it on their shoulder. And so the Israelites would carry the Ark of the Covenant in that fashion. Now, one of the things that we should realize is that the reason why they would carry it this way is so that there was no need to touch the Ark of the Covenant. It's not necessary to touch the Ark of the Covenant if you use the method that God endorsed. Very important you understand this. It is absolutely not necessary to touch the Ark of the Covenant if you use the method that God endorsed. So as we move to Exodus chapter 31, I want to comment on uh, uh, verses uh, 3 to verse 5. So God speaks about two men to Moses. Uh, Exodus chapter 31, from verse 3 to verse 5. God speaks about two men, Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and Oholia, son of Ahisamach, from the tribe of Dan. And these two men, it says, um, he says in verse 3, and I have filled him, uh, speaking of Bezalel uh, specifically, and I filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence and knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, and to work in every craft. So we see that God imbues this person with a certain genius in his craftsmanship so that they can build this ark, this ark of the covenant. And so basically it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a wood and gold, well, a wooden box overlaid with gold and with some patterns on it. And inside, they placed three items, one of which was the Ten Commandments. Uh, the one was the rod of Aaron. The other one was um, a, an omer of, of um, manna. And then they constructed a mercy seat, which was kind of just a, a slab of gold, on which they fashioned two angels facing each other. And they then placed that mercy seat on top as a lid. And then they put the hoops, and that was the Ark of the Covenant. So the, the Ark of the Covenant carried uh, relics of their history, the, the sustenance that they have. So when Jesus says that he's the bread of life, it is, it is, it is reminding them of this manner. Um, the rod of Aaron speaks to the election or anointing of God um, as he selected Aaron apart from other people as they put down sticks on the ground and the one that had buds in the morning was the one that we could see um, God had anointed. And then you've got the Ten Commandments, um, and we can think of this as the law of God, the will of God, the, the, the message of God, uh, if you will. So you kind of have these artifacts of the religion of God inside of this ark. And it's to be carried from place to place. And so what happens is the story that um, of, of, of this the transport of this thing begins in 1 Samuel uh, and chapter 4. It goes on to chapter 5, it goes on to chapter 6, it goes on to chapter 7. But in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we have the, the battle of Ebenezer. And so what happens, strangely, 
is that the Israelites go to war against the Philistines. Um, and the Philistines defeat them. Now they come back home and they think, gosh, why wasn't God with us? You know what? In the next battle, let's take the Ark of the Covenant. And then surely we will win. So first, first lesson here. Um, we tend to employ means, strategies of doing God's work, of going out into the field and, and, and tackling something. And it may be that in this particular instance, God is not with you, right? What you're doing is against his will. God's not there. What tends to happen is that we then come back home and we realize, okay, wait, if God is not with me, maybe let me take one of these religious artifacts around here and go with it. And in doing so, maybe this time, even if I don't have God, I have God's things. Right? So we, we, we take an unsanctioned or, or an, a, a, an uncertified method of doing God's work. We put a religious garb over it and then we hope that it works. And it didn't. They went back to war and they lost like 10 times worse than what they lost the first time. And that shocked them. But now, this is a strange thing. And this, I think, goes into, into um, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 5. But towards the end of chapter 4, so these guys go into war. They're all excited. They're shouting and everything. And the Philistines say, what's going on? What's the sound of war? And they realize that these guys are coming with the Ark of the Covenant. So they realize that this is a religious artifact. This is a symbol of the God who took them out of Egypt. And they start shaking in their boots. And then they say to themselves, no, but wait, we beat these guys yesterday. Let's beat them today. And they go to war and they beat the Israelites. But now they've got a prize. Okay, so now they've got this nice shiny little relic. And they think to themselves, now moving into 1 Samuel chapter 5, they think, ooh, where can we take this? And so they put it on a cart. Notice the difference, right? The Philistines put it on a cart and they drag it off to one of their cities in Ashdod. They take it into the temple of the god Dagon. And they place it there. They go to sleep and they wake up in the morning and they come to the temple and the, the idol um, is face down on the ground. And they go, oh, that's strange. So they pick it up. They put it back. And they go about their day. They go to sleep again. They wake up in the morning and the idol is back down on its face. And this time the head and the arms have been chopped off or broken off so that only the torso remains. Then, according to the Bible, the people in the city start getting tumors. They start getting ill with actual like tumors. And then they say, you know what? Uh, it's okay. We don't have to have this thing. I know it's a spoiler of war, but it's all right. And they send it off to Gath which is another city, another Canaanite city. Uh, so they send it off to Gath, the place where Goliath comes from, right? And when it gets to Gath, the people there suffered illnesses, tumors, 
specifically to Bible source. And so after some time, they say, you know what? Uh, we don't need this anymore. And so they send it off to Ekron. As it was approaching Ekron, the people in Ekron said, ah, 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 we don't want this thing. Please. No, no, no. Send it back. Now, we, we learn in First Samuel chapter 6 that there are two other cities that this went to. In fact, apparently it went from Ashdod to Gaza, from Gaza to Ashkelon, from Ashkelon to Gath, and then from Gath to Ekron, right? But the, the point of, and then this was over a period of about seven months, right? But the point here is it kept going to these cities and causing trouble. So the Philistines gather together and they say, you know what? We don't want this thing anymore. And they send it back. This is now First Samuel chapter 6. They send it back. That's right. In fact, they, they sit among themselves and say, you know, we can't be ungrateful to this, to this um, God of the Israelites. What we're going to do is we are going to add a guilt offering on top of sending back this Ark of the Covenant because we don't want to anger the God of the Israelites. And so that's very strange. So, so they cast five golden mice. Uh, they cast five golden tumors. And they get two milk cows, right? Not cows out in the field that are going to sort of milk cows that have never had the yoke on them. They separate them from their young and they place them at the head of this cart. And then they put a yoke on these two cows for the first time. One has got to appreciate the effort that they went into to appease Israelites' God, right? So, so they're acknowledging that, look, we're sorry. We're very sorry. We're so sorry. We've added all this other stuff that you can just please take it, take this thing back. You don't want it. And in doing so, they then put this, these cows on, with this cart, with the Ark of the Covenant and all these guilt offering stuff. They, they put it on a highway and then just let the cows run or let them walk. And these cows just walk, right? And they just keep going. And they come to uh, a place called Beth Shemesh. And so uh, they go to a, a guy, Joshua. They, they end up at Joshua's house. I'm sure that while, while they're passing through, they're going by the fields and some people saw them. And so I guess they then, you know, kind of, led these cows into a particular uh, field and grazed them there. And now they have this cart with the Ark of the Covenant, right? It's back. And it's got these golden mice and golden tumors, and now they've got these two cows. And so they slaughter the cows, offer them up to God, and this thing then stays at this house, the Bible says, for 20 years. Uh, I don't know how much longer it stayed, but as we now move to 2 Samuel chapter 6, uh, so, th so this place is called both Beth Shemesh. It's called uh, Kiriath Jerium. Um, and then in 1 Samuel chapter 7, it's called Baal Judah. Um, and so it, one, once they, they're done at Joshua's house, they take it to Aminadab's house, and that's where it stays for 20 years, right? They, they kind of let him be the steward of it. Um, and, and this is now where we end. So second, uh, first Samuel chapter seven, they leave it at this place, Kiriath Jerem at Abinadab's house, which is on a hill. And they leave it there in a brand new cart. They offered up the two cows 
and the goal that was there and, you know, all that jazz. Now we jump to 2 Samuel chapter 6, right? And, and to give you a brief story of why we have this jump, um, King David decides that he's going to, once he consolidated Israel, he became king. He thought he needed to do a crowning act. And he thought, I need to go and get Jerusalem, right? It was a city called Jebus, uh, but he thought that this would be the perfect place to have a capital for God's people. And so what he does is he goes to war against Jerusalem, against Jebus at that, at that point it was called. And these people, the city's so fortified that they kind of just put their blind and lame on the outer walls and say, yeah, you guys can't get in. And they climb up through some, some um, tunnels and all that kind of stuff and they overtake the city. And so now he's had a great victory for God and he wants to have a crowning act on this victory. And he remembers, oh, the Ark of the Covenant at, 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 at Aminadab's house. Let's go fetch it, Abinadab's house. Let's go fetch it and bring it here. And that would be awesome. If we could have the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of God, in the city of God. Oh, that would be amazing. So they go to fetch it. And they find it at Aminadab's house, still on that cart. It's been left there the whole 20 years. We're not giving much details to, as to its upkeep, but we know enough that it was still on the cart. So they take this new cart and they attach some horses or some cows to it, I think with some horses, and then they pull the cart with the Ark of the Covenant on it. And along the way, the road is bumpy. And this is now 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 7. 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 7. It says that, so, so in verse 6, it says that the Ark of the Covenant while it was, you know, jiggling about, tips over and is about to fall. And Uzzah stretched out his hand to hold it up. And verse 7 says, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. In the New um, American Standard Bible, it says because of his irreverence. And he died there beside the Ark of God. Now, many people have looked on this verse and been like, oh, why did God strike down this guy. I mean, he was trying to help out. You know, he's, he's, he's only doing his part in trying to make sure that the ark doesn't control. But remember, and this is the crux of what I'm saying, God had implemented a way for the ark of the covenant to be carried. Now, the Philistines, in their ignorance of this command, carried it how they saw fit. When they realized they didn't want it anymore, they sent it back with their method. And the Israelites approaching it, instead of now employing the correct method of carrying God's message, they decide to adopt the method of another people. And when problems arose in trying to fix those problems on this flawed system, a man was struck dead. Everybody got scared, everybody got um, yeah, they got really scared. They, they, they feared for their lives. So they took it to another guy's house. Um, I just forget his name. I think it's Obed, uh, Obed something. And he reverenced it. He maintained it. He watched over it. 
with respect, and his house flourished. And so some time later, David sees this and he goes, okay, I think we can, we can go for the second time and bring it into Jerusalem. But this time he does it with reverence. They carry it the way it's supposed to be carried. And this is the story then when, as they're coming into Jerusalem, David dances, right? All the, the pageantry and the music and the soldiers and everything. Um, but the point that uh, a, a, a Seventh-day Adventist um, theologist, uh, theologian, sorry, says uh, in his book, um, uh, David the King, page uh, 52, he says, there's a right way to approach the living God. And there is a way that can get you killed. So I need you to understand that from a philosophical point of view, from a theological point of view, not every way or every method of innovation is warranted, is appropriate. We've got to, we've got to be clear on that. I am not saying that just because someone thinks, oh, let's do that, you know, this is new, that that should be used. Because doing things the wrong way can have disastrous consequences. But having said that, we need to understand that not innovating is just as dangerous as innovating in the wrong way. So we've got to kind of approach the issue of innovation, the issue of technology, with a mindset that sees it as a challenge to solve problems not to look for problems and shy away. That, that's what I'm trying to communicate here, right? You don't look at the Ark of the Covenant. It's on a cart and say, hey, you know what? Let's just leave it alone. No. Come with poles and carry it the way it's supposed to be carried. Figure out a way to do better. And that's partially what I don't think people are realizing until something like COVID-19 happens and we can no longer gather because of the national lockdown. Now people who are all like, ooh, Facebook, ooh, what's that, ooh, YouTube. No, no, let's not live stream because you don't know what people may say. Yet now those same people are logged on to Facebook and YouTube. Those same people are watching or streaming. The same ones who were against it not more than two, three weeks ago. Because you realize that as times move forward, you need technologies. And the technologies I'm referring to have been around for almost a decade, if not longer. So we should be talking about much more advanced things, but we're consistently playing catch up with the Philistines. We're using their methods instead of creating our own. And so I do want to kind of go over a few of the, let's say, prolific scientists, mostly Western scientists, who were Christian, or at least who believed in God, um, to show that it's not, Necessary that we we, we have a backwards mentality just because we're believers. Isaac Newton believed in God. Sir Francis Bacon believed in God. A lady by the name of Lisa Meitner, a, a prolific scientist, believed in God. Boyle believed in God. Faraday believed in God. John Dalton believed in God. Florence Nightingale believed in God. Blaise Pascal. In fact, if you look at Samuel Morse, Right, he was a Calvinist with Unitarian sympathies, and he funded a lectureship considering the relation of the Bible to the sciences. Right, so he took part in the invention of the single wire telegraph and patented it. He also developed what the, what we call the Morse code. Right, so his invention 
as a Calvinist, aided in communication over long distances. And that communication helped with furthering of the gospel, among other things. Now, had he been scared of technology like many of us are today, we wouldn't have had the telegraph, the precursor to the telephone, precursor to telecommunications. Now, it might have been invented by someone else, fine. But my point is, a Christian didn't shy away from invention just because he was scared of the drawbacks of it. And that's the reality of it. Um, for Seventh-day Adventists, some of you might not know John Harvey Kellogg, the guy who invented Kellogg's, like the, the, the company Kellogg's, yeah. Um, him and his brother, William, accidentally invented cornflakes. So they were trying to invent a substitute for the typical American breakfast. So Seventh-day Adventists don't eat pork. We, we adhere to a somewhat kosher diet, right? Without all the religious rites, but basically Leviticus 11. Because we don't eat pork, we don't eat bacon. Because we don't eat bacon, you can't have eggs and bacon for breakfast. So we're sitting in a situation where in the 1860s, maybe the 1850s, we're realizing that we we don't know what to eat for breakfast and these guys are trying to figure out some way that we can figure something out we can have a healthy breakfast that is in line with our beliefs and they they left some some corn biscuits or something like that out overnight accidentally one time and they came back in the morning and realized that they had they were beginning to flake and that's how kellogg's corn flakes were invented uh, at least the, the precursor to what we have now um John Harvey Kellogg was heavily invested in the beliefs of health reform of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He worked hand in hand with pioneers like James and Ellen White, um, Joseph Bates, um, and, and even started a sanitarium. Uh, John Harvey Kellogg was one of the most prolific medical minds in his time in the US. There's a contraption that he invented that at one point in time, the president of the United States had bought and put in the White House, right? Now, just as a caveat, somewhere in the 1900s, the, 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 the first years of the 1900s, his view started to change. 1907, he disfellowshipped him. And in about 1915, he had begun his work on eugenics. So I'm not denying any of his latter legacy. Right, but his earlier years, mostly in the 19th century, was primarily predicated on Seventh-day Adventist health values. So we had a belief system and he applied science to it so that we could come up with a solution for the lack of options available. In fact, John Harvey Kellogg patented the process for, cre for creating peanut butter, among other things. He also, uh, has patents on um, on particular meat alternatives, meatless. So he created meatless products out of nuts, out of grains, and out of soy. So when you see soy products, soy meatless products, yeah, John Harvey Kellogg was played a huge part in creating that. Um, so instead of saying, oh, we don't eat that, and then kind of resting on our laurels, someone like John Harvey Kellogg decided to see that as a challenge to to, to come up with something so that we could eat, right? And, and it's not to say that we didn't have anything else to eat. It's just 
understanding that problems call for innovation, sometimes for stuff that never existed. Uh, he actually, at some point, had correspondence with the guy who has the patent for peanut butter, for the peanut butter paste, right? So we're not quite sure who invented peanut butter per se, but uh, a black man by the name of Marcellus Gilmore, no, 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 not Marcellus Gilmore, Gilmore Edison, George Washington Carver, um, actually holds the patent for um, for the peanut butter paste, the actual product that you find today if you kind of spread on your bread. And strange thing was, this guy was actually quite prolific. He once appeared before Congress after a speech that he gave in front of the United Peanut Association was so popular that they, they, they went to Congress and asked him, Dude, would you please give us this presentation in front of Congress so that we can look for ways um, to promote uh, having a tariff on peanut, peanut products. And this was done in January of 1921. Um, and, and so, and, and mind you, this, 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 this gentleman, George, uh, George Washington Carver, created over 300 products out of the peanut plant, right? So, so this, is, this is the level that John Harvey Kellogg was operating at in trying to forward or further the health message, health reform, as we call it. So you understand what the belief is, you understand where you are situated, and then you innovate in order to enable its proliferation throughout time. You don't sit on your laurels and hope for better days or hope for the days long gone, you know, when things used to be good and shalala, you know, let's make America great again kind of thing. It's like, no, it, the past is not that rosy. And if we would then apply innovation to the problems we have today, we can make for a better future or at least a future in which we can navigate the problems that we're presented with today. Um, it's, mind you, this, this Carver guy, he took the peanut, the peanut plant and among other uses, he was able to use it in the, the, the manufacturing of chili sauce, shampoo, shaving cream, and glue. I didn't even know peanuts could be used for that. So. It takes a certain imagination to really revolutionize the world. And unfortunately, many Christians, not all, not all, but many Christians, have a fear of innovation. I want to use another example, and it's what we call uh, the Codex. So for anyone who may not understand what the Codex or a Codex is, um, it, it, it's kind of a, a, a very early version of the book of the, the Bible as a book, right, as we understand it. So what used to happen, and there's a professor, Dale B. Martin, who um, gives this lecture in his Introduction to the New Testament History and Literature series uh, that he conducted at Yale University some years back. Uh, by the way, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, um, I, I didn't have much time to compile the presentation. I'll put all these links in. And 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 put it and put a, a link to the presentation up on the Facebook page of this probably by tomorrow, um, just so that you can actually go and have a look at some of the stuff. So so this professor talks about how the codex likely came along. Now 
Academics aren't quite sure how we made the shift to codices, um, but somewhere between the first and the fifth century uh, AD, we went from carrying scrolls to having what is now the, the precursor of the modern book. And what happened was, excuse me, what happened was Christians were trying to convince Jews that Jesus was Christ, was the Messiah. Now you can imagine how that goes. So scrolls were these huge things and you kept them in baskets if, if you were fortunate enough to have a scroll. Um, and so if you, if you had books of the Bible and, and any time in, in ancient Greek or Latin um, or even Hebrew, in, even in the Bible, where you hear them speak of books, they're actually referring to scrolls, right? The, the modern day book didn't exist in biblical times. So you'd have people who, if they want to go to church and preach a sermon, right? You carry the scroll of Isaiah, the scroll of Jeremiah, and then kind of your basket's full. In fact, Isaiah wasn't even in one scroll. I think it was in like two or three. So you couldn't carry the whole Bible with you, the whole Bible. Um, and as people were trying to impress on Jews, as, as the Christians were trying to impress on Jews, that no, this Jesus really is the Messiah, right? It's like, oh, but then how do you know? Okay, let's open the Hebrew scriptures and go to Isaiah. And then you kind of go, whoa, 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 open it, roll, 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 and then connect another text, right? This is what the, the process that we call proof texting, right? Um, so you can imagine how laborious that task is. So some academics believe that at some point, people got the bright idea to just cut up the scroll, place the pages on one another, sew them together, put a cover on it, and you could carry the whole Bible. Or at least you could carry multiple books. Now, I mean, a codex would be like that big, but you're carrying a lot more than you would have carried with the scrolls. So you're able to, number one, proof text easier because now it's just turning pages. And you're also able to carry more of the scriptures with you because now it's more portable. And that was to help them in their evangelistic efforts to prove to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. So yes, Bible study was one method, but in order to do that, they had to innovate, to create something new that is the basis for all these books you see behind me here, just for the gospel. Johannes Gutenberg in the 1400s, looked at printing presses and figured out how to do a movable type-based printing press that allowed for rapid production using lead alloy type pieces. He ramped up production of printing so that you could create 3,600 pages per day. When he did that, things changed. And the first book he printed is called the, the Gutenberg Bible. By 1500, over 1,000 presses were operating in Europe. And by 1600, 
he had, or at least in Europe, because of this press, over 200 million new books were created. Many of them, the Bible. Because a man applied his mind to engineering. The 95 Theses of uh, Martin Luther was printed and distributed over Europe using this press, and that jump-started the Protestant Reformation. You see, they couldn't reach as many people with the 95 Theses if they had to write it out by hand. So if you were a person who said, no, 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 but in, but in my church, in my home, you know, the way I grew up, we used to write things out. You're against progress. How were people going to get the message from Martin Luther if they didn't have the printing press as Gutenberg had invented or had, had, had improved upon? So technology has played a huge role in the proliferation of the gospel. The Seventh-day Adventist church, right, before we were officially organized, we were a movie. And one of the first assets our church ever possessed was a printing press so that we could disseminate the word before we had almost any other asset we owned a printing press the millerite movement had mailed about a, had mailed a whopping eight million pieces of literature in their day and they were the ancestors of the seventh-day adventists and so the Seventh-day Adventists felt way back then that we need to keep up with that rate of production, but we also need to produce content and send it out at an even greater pace. And the only way they could do that was through publishing. A technological advancement or technological prioritization in order to further the gospel. There's one interesting, um, in fact, uh, a, a, a pastor, Matthew Lucio, in his Adventist History podcast, uh, season two and episode 10, called Growth Spurt, actually says, quote, it would be the first piece of property they owned, close quote. The first priority, the Seventh-day Adventist church, was to own a piece of technology. I can't overstate that. Before we had functioning conferences, before we were organized, before we even had ordained ministers, we had a piece of technology because that would help to spread the gospel. I just don't get why people don't like that. This professor, Matthew, Matthew Lucio, also says, and unfortunately I just can't find this reference, but I heard it in one of his podcasts. We've got like over 60 episodes. And I was listening to this while in the car, so I couldn't take notes. But there was a point where Ellen White got herself the telephone a couple of years after it was invented by Alexander Graham Bell. So he invented it in 1868. She got it somewhere in 1870. To this day, the phone number is listed. You can actually search it online. If you search Alms Haven or Ellen White phone number, it'll pop up. Some of us think of Ellen White as some 
weird backwards little old lady. But here she is. If the equivalent of that today is to say that Ellen White had the iPhone 11 or the Samsung S20. That, that would be the equivalent. Now, I bet you didn't think of her like that. And yet, she always kept up with technology in order to further the gospel. In Letters and Manuscripts, Volume 5, from 1887 to 1888, um, specifically Manuscript 25, which was done in 1888, we find that she receives a telephone invitation to the Review and Herald Publishing House to speak to the workers in the office. This is 1888. She's using the telephone. In 1882, Signs of the Times, she references having a telegraph conversation with Dr. Harvey Kellogg. This is in 1882, November the 2nd. 1882. That is over a hundred years ago. Letter 26 in 1880. She complained that the telegraph wires are down while she was trying to communicate with her husband. 1880. This is a year before her husband passes away. This is within 17 years of the founding of our church as an organization. This is 12 years after the telephone, telephone is invented. In Manuscript Releases, Volume 1, uh, which is from 1884 to 1868, on Wednesday, March 18, 1868, she says this, and I quote, at home, Brother King was rested better through the night, yet is very feeble. His head discharges considerably, considerably. Brother Strong and wife went to Brother Maynard's to advise him to go to Ionia, Ionia and telegraph for Dr. Lay. Then we see Dr. Lay coming to the house. So in 1868, she was instructing people to use the telegraph. Technology, because someone was sick. Let's use innovation to help fight disease. We cannot be against the use of technology. Now, not every technology is usable for Christian purposes, fine. But we can't be anti-technology. If she'd sent a letter, Dr. Lay might not have come. And if Dr. Lay might not have come, Brother King might have died. Her own children had to be helped by the same doctor. There's no need to be against technology. I do want to point out that the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. Now, people usually quote this. What it really means, and this is according to Guinness World Records, is that, so what they do is that they have the best-selling book of the year, year after year, and the Bible consistently comes first. Between the years of 1815 and 1975, over 5 billion copies of the Bible were sold. It's translated into, as a whole, Bible is translated into 349 languages. At least one book is translated into 2,213 languages. So in 2,213 languages, you have at least one book of the Bible in that language. Our lesson quarterly states, uh, in last week's or not this week's one, states that 95% of the Earth's population today can read the Bible in a language they understand. Now that is impressive. Because the next highest selling book 
is quotations from the words of Mao Zedong, which sells 820 million. Five billion within a particular period of time, 1815 to 1975, versus 820 million in all time. The next highest selling books, books is the Harry Potter series, which sold 400 million. And then you only get to other books. Right. So the Bible has outstripped every other book in sales by far because it's available to people. If we were still handwriting our Bibles, there's no possible way we could get such numbers. And so an aversion for technology will always hurt the gospel. And that's what we've got to understand. I want to close off with, again, balancing to the other side. Zoom, which is a video conferencing platform, absolutely blew up because of COVID-19, because people are confined to their homes. It absolutely got so many more subscribers and so many more people using it that certain flaws in the system became apparent. There is a, an investor who is suing Zoom because they overstated the security features of Zoom while pitching to him for investment. And now that these security flaws are coming to the fore, excuse me, Zoom took a hit in terms of its stock price and he lost money. And so he was saying, no, 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 I invested under the, the assumption or under the, the knowledge that this is actually supposed to be a secure investment, that Zoom has some of these things sorted out. And because they didn't have those things sorted out because it was a smaller platform at the time, now with this boom, you're having all these security issues and you're causing problems. Now, many of us are using Zoom. Some people are going to use Zoom today to do Bible studies in it. And there are some hectic security features which Zoom is trying to implement now to try and fight the, the problem that they were facing. This should not turn us away from Zoom. It should just conscientize, especially the person who hosts the video conference, that there are certain things I need to be aware of to make it safe for people to interact over this platform. But the alarmist response would be, <gasps> no, let's leave Zoom. I, I, we can't do Zoom because people are being naughty. There are ways to safeguard against the drawbacks of technology. But if we pull back from it, we pull back from an opportunity to do so much. Our pioneers in this religion would be ashamed of such an approach. We probably wouldn't even be here in this position if they hadn't taken bold steps with the use of technology. And that's the reality we're sitting with. The good old days, the tradition that we have is because people embraced technology embraced the platforms they had, or even invented new things so that they could live out their religious lives. 
And here we are getting onto Facebook, how many years later? Off the top of my head, Kelvin, SDA Church. Kelvin on Apple is probably the only church in the country that has just continued business as usual because they always used to stream their stuff. Always, always. This pandemic hasn't really changed their use of the platform. It's probably just changed their programming, you know, the content that they're giving. For everybody else, we're now scrambling. Do, do, do we have a, a Facebook page? Do we have a YouTube page? Have we streamed before? Have we come across issues with streaming? And I had that when I did a sermon two weeks ago, right? Like we are all scrambling now because there's a problem. So something that's been with us for years and we need to get up off our butts and we need to start inventing technologies so that we can start proliferating the gospel in the communities that we live, that we can start helping out, that we can actually be a presence in the communities that we serve, that we can produce content, that we can engage, that we can understand people's needs. How many people have visited your church who are sitting now hungry because they didn't have food to buy emergency supplies? But they came to your church, maybe last week, maybe last month, maybe last year. If you had utilized some form of record keeping, you might know their address, their phone number, you might be able to check up on them. Imagine that, visiting a church, a year later, you come across hard times. And someone from that church calls you and says, hi, I just want to make sure you're okay. That would revolutionize Christianity. But we're still sticking to our paperback Bibles, taking pride in the fact that, no, I've got this old time religion. Guys, we need to stop living the past. We need to start living the present, if possible. We need to start imagining the future. I will take any questions uh, that will be forwarded to me on this platform if there are any. Otherwise, I do wish you well. I hope all is safe and healthy with you and your families. Um, if you do have a family member in hospital, I, I have one and you're unable to visit because of this lockdown, we really would like to pray for them. Um, in times like these, you know, visits from people you love can really make the difference. And due to circumstance, you're finding that people cannot get that human interaction. Perhaps technology can help with that. Make sure to call those you love. Make sure to have conversations. I had a nine-hour conversation with a friend of mine from Russia not too long ago. Just connect, if you can, because physical distance is not an impediment to us having a relationship. If it was so, we should have given up our Christianity with Christ in heaven. But because we are able to communicate, we have not here in our hearts. I pray that this Easter weekend, maybe one 
that's memorable, that's filled with love, filled with joy, filled with companionship, regardless of the impediments that we have. But technology is able to bridge that gap and help us. For those who cannot afford the high prices of technology, well, I hope that government regulators, the industry sees how much of a need this is because there are people who are being left behind simply because they cannot access telecommunications. And yet there's some who have a laptop, a tablet, a phone, and they're scared. Because who knows the worst might happen? So we need to take courage and use what we have, the staff that is in Moses' hand, in order to deliver people for God's purposes. As always, from the Mishesh family, from the Cape Conference as well, we wish you peace, love, and happiness. God bless.